Welcome to What Korean Cinema 37 on Shiri. And the characters in Shiri try and prevent South Korea from going boom. But the movie from 1999 went boom commercially. And perhaps without uh, the spark it set off commercially, Korean cinema would look a lot different today. We'll see. Maybe we'll have some theories on it. But the new Korean cinema wave starts here. And here to talk about it and Shiri is uh, me, Kenny B. And... Who else uh, to talk about the new Korean uh, cinema wave? Uh, who else should I turn to? Well, it should be Hangul Celluloids. Paul Quinn, of course. So welcome, buddy. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. This was a movie I, I reckon you... I mean, you, you didn't start watching Korean movies in 1999. But how how, how fast did it take for you to jump on um, Shiri, if you remember that uh, offhand? I would say I was a little bit behind on it, to be honest with you. I, I'm assuming from vague recollection, I saw it in maybe 2004, 2005. So it wasn't f- far off the my heyday of, oh, look, it's Korean. Oh, look, it's Korean. But it certainly wasn't one that I jumped to go and buy. It was more, you know, I'd seen A Tale of Two Sisters. I'd fallen in love with it. You know, I'd seen Tell Me Something that we'll mention later on. Um Etc. Etc. And you go around DVD shops, or you did in those days, and you saw Shiri, and you thought, "Oh, look, pretty lady, lovely girl on the cover of a Korean movie. I'll get that." And then you realise it's nothing like that. Um, so it was almost inadvertent because at that time I wasn't aware of how influential it had been. That's rather cool because uh, you, and I'm not saying you you don't absorb knowledge because you do, but it, it's Shiri was such a big commercial you know fireworks and uh, set up so many things that 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 didn't i mean the new korean cinema wave didn't create dozens of these movies it set off creativity of uh, of uh, you know nuanced kind and uh, of the genre kind i mean a year later we had a year or two later we had jsa and that obviously wasn't an extension of cheery it was yeah. um, its own thing so uh, the, the the thing it set off was commercialism but a whole lot of creative and nuanced freedom regardless of the genre it really did but i mean from from a personal point of view i can actually remember when i did watch shiri going oh look it's the guy out of christmas in august rather than watching christmas in august and thinking oh look it's hansa q he's from shiri it was completely the other way around because i was later to the table with with shiri just because it was less of the sort of film that I would have run to the shops for. Yeah, and 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 my point was too that the, the, not jumping on it right away didn't mean you were missing out on the context of the boom or anything. Yeah, you know because exactly. uh, you you got to experience it sometimes in real time, depending on uh, because so, so, sometimes you might have gone for a movie shortly after release but uh, you know a year or two later when they hit um, dvd shops and all of that the heyday of korean cinema distribution on uk dvd i think we passed that heyday nowadays and now it's more sparse right Uh, the odd release here and there i would have agreed with you a year or 18 months ago but the last the last year there's been a lot popping up big part of that's down to films like villainess and the handmaiden being so successful but you walk into there's a the big the only big dvd place left in really the uk is fop it's called if you pop in there you can almost guarantee you'll see a korean film you didn't know was being released 
all of a sudden you're just like, oh, really? You know, I, even we spoke a while ago about me walking into Sainsbury's and seeing the tiger with Chairman Sick. And it's like, what? I didn't know that was being released. I didn't know it was being released exclusively by Sainsbury's either. Yeah. So it's picking it's picking up again. Whether it continues into 2018, well, we'll see. Yeah, across a few labels as well. I mean, off the top of my head, uh, obviously Tartan, they're not they're not around under the name Tartan anyway. But uh, you obviously have Kaleidoscope and um, an Arrow did Villainous, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, totally. And and thankfully, Eureka are starting to do a lot oh, of yeah, stuff of as well. Yeah. You know, and there's, I can't even remember, is it 88 films? Yeah, yeah, that's right. They've, um, they've picked up, uh, well, well, now I'm blanking on my name. The, 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 the title that came into my head is actually a Shin Sang-ok title. That's a Hong Kong movie because they did the um, the Shaw Brothers ghost movie that Shin Sang-ok mm. um, directed, uh, The Ghost something something. Uh, but uh, I'm sure they've done a Korean movie or two as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I seem to remember them having like a, a list of three or four and it was like, wow, that's really, really good. So, you know, it's it's been looking much more positive. And uh, that is uh, a cool little insight into what's going on in the UK. And uh, what's also going on in the UK is uh, the premium website for Korean cinema reviews and, and news and uh, interviews and essays. And that will be your website. So plug away, PQ. Thank you very much. I'm Paul, as I've just been introduced. I run HangulCelluloid.com, which is exclusively Korean reviews, interviews, talks I've given, rants. You can find me on at www.HangulCelluloid.com. I'm on Facebook at Facebook.com slash HangulCelluloid. I'm on Twitter at HangulCelluloid. Head over to the website, have a a look about um, some of the things we'll be talking about tonight. Are obviously reviewed and etc etc on the site so have a look and let you know let me know what you think what's the next um event thing that's gonna occupy a few days of your time because uh london does hold uh movie events and festivals and uh and retrospectives and stuff uh what's on the calendar as far as uh, you know uh, right now in 2018 for 2018 the next big set of things is the kcc i guess starting up there their film nights and they're supposedly bringing a few directors during the year rather than just leaving it to the festival so we're all sort of trying to clear the decks so that by mid-february end of february when it all kicks off we're you know we're everybody's ready to go and grab whatever it is that they haven't told us what it's going to be yet looks like it might be quite exciting but that's really the first big thing until then really it's just picking reviews that I, I feel are films that deserve to be talked about, whether they're good or indeed bad. Or uh, new or old, because you have that little uh, side track project to uh, review vintage, and not vintage from late 90s, but uh, vintage that are decades old movies. So you have that little side track to occupy you with uh, as well. I'm really sort of seeing the merit of that more and more, the more, the more I do. It seems to be being well received so i think it's worth continuing and uh, it, it's not not that i should credit myself for this show or anything but it, it, it's a little bit of an extension of what we've talked about at least off air that the value of connecting old and new in the case of the two-week run that we have now we, we're connecting modern and somewhat modern but in in in, in i don't know uh, to our eyes and ears sherry from 1999 is a new movie but it, it is coming up on you know next year is 20 years old so yeah exactly <laughs> i will say that 
the new and old of podcast on fire was a huge inf- inspiration for me to do it as a you know a, an ongoing theme i always reviewed old stuff from you know now and then but it was never new old new old and i i, I kind of at the minute anyway i kind of like doing that because it it pushes people to to look at stuff and you know also uh, you don't need to unearth it because uh, that's where um, the korean film archive comes into play with uh, these movies being available at the click of a button officially and uh, these are legal streams and all of that so obviously that's not um, you don't need to hunt for a few months in the case of these movies exactly exactly and you know sometimes as in the case of, i mean the next old one i'm doing is a film from 1962 called a woman judge and it was the second film ever to be directed by a woman and you know i i got the email from coffer saying we've just put this online and i thought oh yeah and the reason i chose it was because it was oh it's the second film by a woman because the first film by a woman was dealt with at the london korean film festival so there was no point in doing that so it almost it carries it on it's just it's great to be just handed these things really Absolutely. Well, uh, cool. And looking forward to it. All links will be available in the show post. And as for the rest of the contact information, this is What Korean Cinema on the Podcast on Fire Network. And for all your Podcast on Fire Network needs, go to podcastonfire.com where you'll find this show and uh, a plethora of other shows uh, covering Hong Kong cinema, new and old Taiwanese uh, genre cinema. We do audio commentaries. We do shows on sleazy movies from Hong Kong, but uh, with its share of context and fun is spread out all throughout those shows and we have bonus episodes and plenty of you to choose from so hope you find something you like and if you are a first time listener thank you very very much and uh, let us know what you thought of Shiri for instance uh, either on email podcast on fire at googlemail.com or search us out on Facebook by clicking uh, well the easiest way to do so is click the handy Facebook button at the top of our website uh, that will lead you to our page and you can also search out our group Call Podcast on Fire Network to interact with us and all of that. So let us know uh, if your memories of Shiri or if it's, if it's your first time watching Shiri in 2018, let us know. We're a friendly bunch, so welcome in. And also you can follow us uh, to other social media such as Twitter. There, there's a handy button for that. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and stream us on Stitcher. There's handy buttons for that as well. Am I writing off mainly Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies with a little, little um, twist of Korea every now and again? that's all available on sogoodreviews.com and my little video hub for um, video reviews is sleazykvideo.com and my twitter handle is at sogoodreviews so we have a um, few sections coming up um, and they are labeled with time codes in the show post in case you want to navigate yourself through the episode that way so this Shiri special uh, will go down in the following way first we talk the production background and uh, the commercial impact of Shiri as well as providing some notes on the director we then go through actor Han Suk-kyu's uh, career in the bio section and we'll conclude the show with the review of Shiri and that movie is from 1999 and plot I took from the BBFC website because our Korean cinema guru had not reviewed it at least not put it on his website so um but uh, it, it's an easy plot uh, but i still took it from somewhere so ryu played by han suk kyu and lee played by song kang ho race against the clock to save seoul from disaster after a rogue group of north koreans try to lead the country into war and uh, obviously there's the search for the uh, 
almost a mythological uh, assassin called he and uh, the North Korean rogues uh, led by Choi Min-sik in his award-winning uh, performance as the, uh, as the rough and brutal leader of the North Koreans. So Shiri, it gets singled out as quote-unquote the first Hollywood-style big-budget blockbuster to come out of the new wave of Korean cinema in the late 90s. Again, it was released in 1999. And uh, that that connects itself, apparently, to Korea's economic boom in the late 90s. And I don't know any of these things, so I rely on Paul. So how can we put that economic aspect into context? I mean, w- was there any single or several things that made South Korea thrive financially? And uh, the ripples to the movie industry you know, meant that several productions got increased budget in 1999 and onwards? Or what's the picture we can paint of South Korea here? It's a really, really twisted story. And from my point of view, it's hugely interesting. I hope you lot find it interesting as well. If you look at the late 80s, early 90s, the screen screen quota of uh, Hollywood movies versus Korean movies were brought in so that Korean cinemas were forced to show Hollywood movies. And that was the very first time Korea really had to compete on a world stage within Korea. And Korean filmmakers were a bit behind the mark. They they really didn't know how to do that. And as a result, Hollywood movies were becoming more and more popular and Korean movies were just going down the pan. Statistically, if you look at 1993, the market share that Korean cinema had within cinema in Korea, it was 16%. 16? 16%. The rest was Hollywood and international. So the screen quota nearly floored absolutely everything. But at the same time, as you say, there was the start of an economic boom. South Korea entered the United Nations, trade internationally was was going through the roof, and a load of big government-controlled conglomerates called chables were created. And these, among other businesses, invested in Korean cinema. And as such, budgets got bigger, and Korean filmmakers got a better chance to, to make films that weren't particularly Hollywood based. They were still very Korean, but they were they were more polished. They were better, et cetera, et cetera. Still not really making it in terms of against Hollywood. They still weren't making things that would be shown in Hollywood. But towards 1997, I think, 97, 98, there was a big crash economically in Asia and economic boom almost instantly reversed. And these big chables, these big conglomerates decided they couldn't afford really to to risk investing in cinema anymore. They needed to look to their own things. So they started selling off their, their links to the film industry to private companies. And private companies, one, had big money, two, didn't really care about what the government thought. The government had always said, you know, talk about good things about Korea, we'll let you make the movie. If you slag off Korea, you won't get to make it. These private companies didn't care. They just thought, we want to make money. So they were able to invest huge amounts of money. They were able to go to these new directors and say, can you make something that's quite kind of, you know, commercial and Hollywood-like? And bang, you've got Shiri, you've got Nowhere to Hide. As such, 
almost the economic crash helped Korean cinema. And after 2000, as the economy started to, to grow again, cinema was already there. You know, I, I, now I can connect those dots in terms of where Hollywood thinking uh, came from. But, but were they attempting any type of bigger spectacle in, in the 90s or the latter half of the 90s, regardless of the economic boom? Or, or what was the style of Korean cinema at the time? Or what was the kind of movie that just, you know, screamed Korean cinema, uh, you know, throughout the 90s? I mean, if you look at the late night, if you look at 1999, the the really big films that there were deeply drama based. I mean, Happy End with again with Chae Min Sik and um, Jun Do Yeon uh, about a guy whose wife has an affair against him, and he figures out what he's going to do to sort it out. I, I won't give you the, the thing away. You'd a lot of romantic films like Ghost in Love. And you'd lots of horrors like Tell Me Something, again with Hansa Q and with Shimuna. You know, the, the two of them at the time were sort of, I guess, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman of Korean cinema, really. These were all getting bigger budgeted films, but they were all still hugely Korean. The, the horror films were the long-haired ghost or the guy in the hooded cape cutting people up. The romances were very much you know, love across time as they had been. The Hollywood side of things just hadn't been anywhere. And it was films like Shiri with its, for Korea anyway, its huge budget and things like Nowhere to Hide that that could be accessed internationally that started to change Korean cinema. So, yeah, they'd been moving that way, but it was only with these private companies investing and saying, look, you've got to compete with Hollywood that they specifically went and said, there's your budget, compete with Hollywood. That's all true, but you know, when you look at Shiri and what, um, what it's plotting is and all of that, it, it doesn't sound like a desperate move to generate money because they, they're making a Korean story, right? They're not setting it elsewhere. They're not uh, ripping off you know, Die Hard or anything like that. Uh, so it felt more like, and if you read research, it seems to lean more towards that. They were paying homage to more high-octane, loud and exciting Hollywood action pictures that are not just from the 90s, but also the 80s, while at the same time keeping it, keeping it local. I mean, it's not a distant topic, this hot-button topic of the North and South, of course, but, but they are common and relevant issues. So, you know, making high-octane stuff that's about reality... But in that package, uh, didn't seem like the most like foreign idea, but rather a local idea. I I tend to agree, and I, I you know I would almost think that if if you look at we'll talk about director Kang Jae give shortly a lot more. But watching Shiri or rewatching Shiri, I immediately thought you know that this guy knows his high octane action movies. He's he's really taken the good things about Hollywood action, the good things about Hong Kong action, and has twisted it to a Korean thing. So, yeah, it is still very homegrown, but it's also, I guess, commercially viable. Oh, for sure. I mean, and and, and also it was sold, so it was not like they actually did run uh, into that wall of someone saying, 
what's this? We don't recognize yeah, this. Yeah. Keep it in Korea, you lot. So, so obviously that uh, mixture it was um, was appealing. It is said indeed to have flourishes based on viewer and critical observations, I don't agree with all of them, of Hong Kong action directors such as John Woo, Ringo Lam and Choi Hak, as well as the work of James Bond director Guy Hamilton and even James Bond stuntman and second unit director and also director by now Vic Armstrong. Uh, Vic Armstrong, among other things, directed a movie called Joshua Tree with uh, Dolph Lundgren, which uh, pays homage to John Woo uh, hugely, which, which is a fun story because um, when he met John, uh, Vic uh, said to him, I, I do have to apologize. I was essentially ripping you off when I made Joshua Tree. And you know what John's response was to Vic Armstrong in that uh, in that case? Go on. Don't worry, John. Uh, don't worry, Vic. I've been ripping you off for years. There you go. What a lovely answer, right? <laughs> lovely. Perfect. Uh, the title Shiri, which is pronounced Sphiri, uh, refers to a fish found in Korean freshwater streams. And in the movie, there, there's dialogue about, uh, you know, a character talks about, um, you know, the North and Korean waters, they flow together and fish can be found on either side. So essentially, he's referring to a non-conflict in water versus the issue of Korean reunification on land. Uh, it, it's not so much a monologue, but rather they... They talk about it for a little bit rather than stopping the movie for monologue now, <laughs> which would have been the more pretentious choice, really. And uh, and, and the fish has a, a fun uh, plot twist within the movie, the, the use of fish, which I found uh, was rather amusing on, um, on reviewing, actually. Speaking of budget, it was the most expensive Korean movie at the time, budgeted at $8.5 million US. And the movie went on to score a $6.5 million people attendance in South Korea, beating the previous record holder Titanic by a 2.2 million margin. Titanic was a global thing, and to beat it by that much, I think, is quite immense, especially for a local movie to just wipe the floor with Titanic like that. Totally, and it does have to be said, Shiri, Shiri actually became known as the little fish that sank Titanic, uh, so... <laughs> You're not the king of the world anymore, Jim Cameron. <laughs> There you go. Suck that up, Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> it also actually passed the Imquantex Sopionje records-wise along the way, because that was, uh, for, for a number of years, uh, the highest attended Korean movie at, the, at that point. Uh, Sopionje was a few years earlier, and um, uh, not uh, not the, the week before or anything. So, um, And I didn't know that. I mean, I, I know I, I like Sopionje, I know you like Sopionje. I didn't remember it was a box office hit, actually. But, uh, huge, huge hit. Well, obviously, you just said so, but yeah, quite rightly so. And Shiri was a Pan-Asia hit, including in Hong Kong. So uh, indeed, uh, it got uh, it got out there in Asia. And it also has gotten Western distribution widely, including in Sweden, where we added an extra tag when it was released on DVD. You know, it was Shiri, and then the title afterwards was translated as The Face of Terror. Which, okay, fine. The, the, the thing is, that was released on a specialized label anyway called Asian Vision, which was huge for us because we didn't have a dedicated label for... Asian movies, and that included Korean movies, Hong Kong movies. We had the likes of Number Three, we had Shiri, we had Infernal Affairs on that label. So they 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 did uh, bring some cool stuff to um, to DVD. Uh, I'd never rented Number Three. I, I remember I had tell me something, and uh, unfortunately I didn't finish that movie. I, I just, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm completely stupid, so uh, it's my fault. But yeah, I I watched Tell Me Something, and I don't get this. What's going on here? No, I, I will. I will give you that. Tell me something has 
confusion towards the end. I didn't get I didn't get that far. <laughs> I was like one third in. I don't get this, but obviously if I rewatch it and focus for once, I probably can't get it. You know, so as as we've said, it does star Shimuna, and it's very difficult to focus on a storyline when you're looking at her because she's just she was imaginary wife number one for a long time before uh, Jun Jihyun hit the scene, right? Way way before. Sadly, she you know sadly she no longer acts so. But as for award season, Shira did score. The Grand Bell Awards acknowledged actor Choi Min-sik with the Best Actor Award, actress Kim Jun-jim, the Best New Actress category. For all of your listeners, if you've ever watched any American TV drama, those of you who were obsessed with Lost for all those years, Kim Yoo-jin is the Korean actress that was a big, member of the Lost cast. Oh, so Sweet. Uh, so she was comfortable in English or did she appear uh, speaking Korean in that one? Or no, what? no, she's, she's, she's fluent in English and when she was doing Lost, she was doing it and then heading back to Korea doing you know, she's still very, very active so oh, oh, you know, cool. she, she went back and did Sunny and stuff and then headed back to the States so she's you know, she's a big name. Yeah, Shiri also scored technical awards such as Best Editing and uh, Best uh, Sound Effects. And uh, the year was otherwise dominated by a movie called Spring in My Hometown that bagged the awards for Best Film Director, Cinematography, Music and such things. And I'm sure you've seen that movie, Spring in My Hometown. So I have indeed. What's your memories of that and any spontaneous memories of 1999, like the, the year of movies come awards time? Uh, is there anything other than these two that stand out? I have always said I'm obsessed with new Korean cinema. Every time I get a chance to say, new Korean cinema, it's really important. 1999 really could almost sum that whole thing up. The number of of hugely famous new Korean cinema films that came out in 1999 and, you know, won awards and sold hugely. It was such a phenomenal year. Attack the Gas Station, which is hugely famous. Tell me something, whether you enjoyed it or not. Nowhere to Hide, Happy End, that we've already mentioned, Young Gary, um, which I know you know. Oh, of. oh the, the remake of uh, Young Gary, you mean? Uh, yeah. uh, Reptilian, I think, uh, also, also a, re- a remake of that. I, I love that you slotted that in, because that movie is not liked anywhere. That movie is not even finished, really. <laughs> do you know what? Do you know, do you know what place it, it sat in the 1999 Korean box office? No. Number, number six. Sweet! It I, had, I like that film. It had 700,000 admissions. Despite being, you know, an English language film and crap? Yeah, exactly. You know, so and you'd, you'd also horrors like The Ring Virus, which I think is the best of The Ring stuff and not just because it's Korean. So it was it was a huge year. Um, tell Me Something, Attack the Gas Station, Nowhere to Hide, Happy End, all got awards at various ceremonies here, there and everywhere. Um, but I agree, Spring in My Hometown really is more deserving than all of them put together. It's a phenomenally beautiful film. Sounds like a small small drama based on the English title. Um, it's it's essentially a, a war movie. It's, it's the story of the Korean War seen through the eyes of two little boys. So all the, the war drama is almost, it, it's not shown, it's just there perception of it. We've talked a lot about Ansuki, um, who is one of the, the most famous, you know, veteran actors. He plays 
one of the boy's fathers. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's visually stunning. It's sound. It's music is gorgeous. And it's a, it's a very understated story of, of the horrors of war without showing the horrors of war. It's a gorgeous film. If you get the chance to find it, you know, grab hold of it with both hands. I even know some of those those movies from that year. So it's cool that the, the already that year the, the it was a boom, and in 2000 it was more more of a boom. And the, then we got the Revenge trilogy and the Two Sisters, and they just kept kept on rolling, man. So, exactly. And just and just in in looking through research for this, just looking back at 1999, you know, I actually had shivers up my back as to what an exciting year it was you're just like wow i'd forgotten all this stuff came out in 1999 wow amazing year Shiri obviously a big success story and you would think let's capitalize on that commercially but we never got a sequel but the tv series iris from 2008 starring lee byung-hun is said to have a Shiri connection of some sort so Care to fill us in? Have you seen it? Or is it one of those 120 episodes long commitments that you simply don't have time for? I have seen it and I, I saw it thanks to a name that you'll remember. Do you remember Martin Cleary? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Who who either used to or still runs New Korean cinema. He, he, sent, he sent me a message at one stage and said he was coming down to London. Did I want to borrow Iris? That was really the first I'd heard of it, apart from knowing that Lee Byung-hun was in it. So you know, I grabbed it off him and I watched it in the space of a week. Um, it was initially inspired by the story of Shiri. That's really the connection. They based it on the story and then changed it around. And it's essentially two South Korean agents who fall in love with the same woman, played by Kim Tae-hee, famous in her own right. Um, and they come to blows while they're fighting north korean spies it's the most balanced and unbalanced thing i've ever seen um, you'll get half an episode that is completely cinematic and would look perfectly fine in an imax cinema you'll get 10 minutes that looked like it was filmed on a camcorder for a tv show and then you'll get some huge amount of dialogue that's just korean drama that shouldn't really be there that shuts it all down and then there'll be a huge explosion it's the weirdest thing that just you're constantly shifting because you don't know what you're watching it changes in so many respects um it's interesting there is a little bit too much of lee byung-hung topless shall we say i got a bit tired of looking at his pecs well you know any any female listeners listening to this will probably try and find out where I live and come at me with a knife. But yeah, there kind of is. He's pumped in this. He's too pumped in this. There there are lots. He's tortured a lot. So there are lots of, oh, look, sweaty Lee Byung-hung. And you can just imagine female viewers just, you know, falling off their yeah, seats. Go on, torture him. <laughs> it can't find a balance between humongous action, drama, and, you know, melodramatic romance in terms of the the triangle between these two what were friends and are now enemies loving the same woman it's all a bit it's it's very histrionic it's very you know look at this was it a long show or did it keep it uh, at a respectable amount of episodes it it was a long show it went on for i think that the average is like 30 whatever and it carried through that and then 
they they turned it into a movie. But to make it into a film, they just took sections from the TV show and lumped them together into a two-hour thing. So when you watch the film, it's almost like you're cascading through an entire TV show and missing bits because they're not there. And then the end, endings change. So very, very, very odd that there was a sequel called Athena, Goddess of War, which was, to my mind, much, much better. It was much more balanced. It was uh, made as a movie or was a TV series? As a TV show. Right. If you're into looking at loads of episodes of a, a, a Korean TV show, I'd go for Athena, Goddess of War rather than Iris. Iris is a, a bit uh, that thing where you watch an episode and you think you liked it, but you're not actually sure because there were bits of it you didn't like. You know, it, it's, it is so all over the place. Uh, cool. And as for the director of Shiri, Kang uh, Jae-gyu, for those who even know, they, they might view him as a capable handler of the big action thriller, if they know his filmography, and a war movie. You know, considering he has two spectacle hits on his uh, resume, uh, Shiri and the 2000 movie, 2004 movie, Taeguki, if you pronounce it that way, I'm sorry. Also known, I think it was released in the UK under the title Brotherhood. So yeah, that rings a bell indeed. Uh, that, that movie, Brotherhood, it that at the time crushed Shiri's attendance records by cracking ten million. So obviously, yeah. still in two thousand and four, it had a commercial power. But you know, when you look back at that career, I mean, it spans a lot of decades. It's starting in nineteen ninety one. But you know, what is the true sort of cinematic identity of uh, Kang? I mean, is it the big, I mean, they did a movie called My Way, it's a war film, or, or did they switch to romantic comedy with Salute D'Amour, add some versatility to the voice, or what do you think of him? See, I mean, the, the, the thing about Kang, if you mention his name to anybody who's seen some of his films, they'll have seen Sherry, they'll have seen Tiguchi, they'll have seen My Way, and they'll immediately think he is the war movie guy. As he moved through those films, if you watch them back to back you find that within the war things it's actually the emotions and the, the the character interactions and the depth that increases and that's where i feel his true thing lies yes he's done big war films big action films and yes he's done romantic comic comedy like salute the more which I, I i admit i haven't seen but for me his voice he in 2014 he did a short film called Awaiting. And it's the story of a young woman who is every day waiting for her husband to come on, come home from the war. He's gone, you know, he's gone off uh, and the war has kept them apart. And she, she's convinced he's coming back. And halfway through that short film, you realize that everything, I'm not going to give it all away, but you realize everything you've seen isn't what it appeared to be. It's emotionally wrenching, wrenching it pulled me apart and even though he's mentioning war again the war is almost off in the distance and there's so much beauty and depth in that little short film i think it's about 25 minutes long that's what i would see him doing more than anything else as his strong point there's a review of it on my site for anybody who can't find the film and just wants to know a little bit more it's it's a wonderful short if you look at him later on, he has gone back to an action sort of deal. He did a film called Bad Guys Always Die, which was a collaboration between China and Korea, starring the wonderful Son Ye Jin. 
And I assume he's done that because he's got the chance to do it. It's a big action film. It's going to be easy. It's very throwaway. It's not really got any depth at all. And I think he just did it because he had the opportunity. But for me, his his talk of war covered with emotion is the way he heads. And that's the way he should be thought of. Yeah, his his work is sparse. I mean, or at least spread out. So uh, one of those guys that still can make movies, but um, tries to find uh, you know the right project and uh, for for it to make you know sense for him and commercially and all of that. So uh, because he's been part of so many decades that commercialism is changing. So a particular voice might not be suited for. 2018 while it would have been suiting suited for 1999 so uh, you know yeah totally that that collaboration might have been that uh, experience or that exercise okay how can i make a dent can i make a dent well let's try this so exactly i think that's exactly what he did yeah another one that um, sort of is um crafting his own identity it seems like based on the research is our lead actor of uh, shiri hansu q and he he is an actor that has also maintained a profile since the 90s and uh, he is also apparently a self uh, obsessed uh, movie nerd he adores studio ghibli a japanese animation reportedly which is not the worst rumor to have about you that you like gorgeous animation suited for all ages <laughs> yeah know? totally totally <laughs> but you know all of this might answer itself as, as i talk about about the man but uh, try and set the stage for us in terms of hansu q is he one of the most commercially viable leading man idolized or more of a strong veteran presence that commands respect from the audience and or within the industry or, or or does he have a commercial pull still and always has it's his career is a really strange thing as i say around the time of you know green fish number three christmas in august the contact cheery he was so good that he was seen as this leading man and he was constantly paired with you know, the beautiful actresses of the day, Shimuna, et cetera, et cetera. And he really did have this. He is the the guy, the, the leading actor that's going to have project after project. He started his career really alongside Chaemin Sik and Song Kang Ho, as we've seen, because they're all in Shiri. But if you look at their careers, they've gone stratospheric. You know, they're doing these huge blockbuster films, these huge hugely successful things, you know, Admiral Roaring Currents, Sean Kang Ho constantly works with Park Chan-wook. Han suk if you look through his career, you recognize the films, but they're largely not big. I mean, he's done films that have been huge successes, but it almost seems inadvertent. And as I look through what he's done, I constantly think of him looking at a film and choosing it because it's a worthy project rather than you know, it's going to be a blockbuster. This blockbuster, that. And 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 by the way, that's not saying the other guys do. It's uh, it's these are the, the way the the sort of chips have landed, I suppose. That uh, because because if you look at um, well, well, I've not seen it yet, but I uh, I want to a movie like um, a Taxi Driver for last year, Song Kang Ho, big big success, but not a like a super cheery easy commercial film. No. Not at all. And that means it is, you know, nuanced and personal and stuff. Yeah, totally. And I, it, it is an incredible film. And again, that could be said that he, he chose it because of, of what it is. It's about, the you know, the Guangzhou massacre, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you look at Han Suk-yu, it's almost a lot of the films he's done just are 
really not big at all. And you just think he's done it because of what they are rather than, you know, oh, I'm a leading actor. It's just he has become the the veteran leading character actor in big character roles. Um, and I think I think that's something to be hugely proud of. He did in 2008, nine. He did a film again with Sonia Jin called Into the White Knight. And he had to play an aging, diabetic failure of a detective who had failed to solve a crime in his younger days. And new evidence comes to light when he's old and falling apart and he can't let it go. And he refused at first to play it because he was required to have gray hair and look worn. And after he read the script a couple of times he said no this is this is important for me and it wasn't it wasn't a huge film but it's a wonderful film and that indeed paint, uh, paints a picture uh, which is important so let's um, uh, run through the bio a little bit here uh, Hans Q was a student at the theater and art film department of uh, Dongguk University while at the same time apparently singing in an amateur rock band uh, um, he actually scored an early voice acting contract you know for animation or commercials or whatever at the Korean broadcasting system and was uh, soon uh, thrown into uh, TV and film acting uh, within TV you know the small screen the breakthrough came in the 1994 series the moon of soul where he played a gigolo who grew up in the slums whose goal was to get rich no matter what the cost and consequences so it seems it seems like he possibly was an anti uh, you know anti-hero of a character but he was paired with um at least for a stretch anyway because i'm sure this this series was fairly long he was paired with uh, choi min sik in the series and they also got to share the screen in the likes of shiri and it also features actors and you know by now veterans that w- would go on to star in movies such as the quiet family first save the green planet etc so tv is a breeding ground the moon of soul seemed like a breeding ground but uh, do, do you have any knowledge about it i mean is it quality tv or is it, or is it daytime soap opera hysterics that just happen to have acting breakthroughs uh, of this kind uh, it's said that it's part of a golden era of korean tv that but that might not be saying much about its quality actually from what i can gather from the k-drama experts if you call the gurus the moon of soul is hugely influential it's really well thought of it's supposedly i i haven't seen it it's too you know i I mean i think it was 1994 i think me getting to see drama you know tv drama from back then it it ain't gonna happen might not even be available subtitle very very likely but from the k-drama lot that constantly talk about you know my love from the star you know um the good doctor all the new stuff that they rate for them to rate the moon of soul as highly says to me anyway it was way above par it was far more quality far more golden era of korean tv than a lot of tv drama that you would expect to just be melodramatic throwaway bad quality so it's hugely well thought of and i i think you can you can probably believe that and having both Chapman Sick and Hansel Q paired together when they were then going to go on and work in in other what would be become hugely influential films says a lot. I think I think they're a, a another pull towards it. So 
That's uh, very cool to hear. And uh, so that, that hit its stride, uh, the career commercially in TV, but it also happened in movies. Uh, um, the breakthrough commercially and critically with movies in the latter half of the 90s, such as uh, Greenfish, Number 3, Christmas in August, and Cheery. And they they obviously single out, but what, what became evident about Hansu Q as an actor and performer and commercial power, if you will, I mean, he was obviously a strong leading man and uh, you know got a star presence about him but what 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 drew audiences in do you think it was a combo of him strong actors or or was this quality material that brought audiences in as well if you look at those three movies greenfish number three christmas and august uh, uh, on its own i mean so the combination of actor commercialism thing what what was it i think it's all of the above you've got a quality actor who was you know, with within a very short space of time, hugely popular. You know, everybody in hindsight has said he was the the Tom Cruise of Korean cinema. That's how popular he was. But he was really good at what he did. And on top of that, if you look at Greenfish number three, Christmas in August. I mean, Christmas in August, Her Jin Ho. He was he was massive. He was the romantic heartbreak melodrama guy of the new Korean cinema wave. So anytime he released a film, it was popular. If it had Hansa Q and Shim Yuna in it, bang, you got double. If you look at Green Fish, uh, it's actually by a director called Lee Chang Ho, who's, who's frankly my favorite director of all time. He's only done six or seven films, but massively, massively well written. And again, starring Hansa Q in a gangster sort of deal, which was again hugely popular in the new Korean cinema wave. Number three. Again, it's a sort of a gangster comedy with Hang Suk Chaemin Sik. They all hit all buttons. Gangster comedies, gangster dramas were really popular. Hang Suk was really popular. The directors were really popular. They were really well written. It all hit at the right time. And it's sort of, he is the product of the popularity of new Korean cinema. And he sort of caused it as well. And 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 I'm glad to hear it wasn't just um, empty movies, but that they, they were offering up something whether good commercialism or actually things of uh, you know a somewhat deeper nature or a smart nature or you know uh, rather than just uh, being stuff uh, poured onto the market just because the market wants it yeah, you know so which is something i've always admired about this new korean cinema wave that my god were the quality movies rather than yeah this totally feels like sheer Xerox copy five, you know, I I never really got those vibes from the Korean cinema I watched, which is you know massively lesser than uh, than, than you have, obviously. But uh... from my point of view, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And we've spent so much time talking about the big hitters, the Chimin Sek, the Song Kang Ho's, and when we you suggested Cherry, I was so glad because so many people who are into Korean cinema now don't know who Hansa Q is. And he was massive. And it's just really nice to to point a finger and say, you know, some of the stuff he was in, you, you need to watch. You need to go and buy it if it's on DVD because he was phenomenal. And he's just, he's almost been overlooked by audiences of today, even though he's still acting and he's still successful. He's not in the same, he's not considered in the same bracket by, by most people. And that's a real shame. There, there, there might be reasons for that uh, that that were um, 
out of his hands, which we'll we'll get to. But uh, being part of that new Korean cinema wave of the 90s that then carried into the new millennium and then some. Hansu Q was very firm on, personally, on filmmaking being script-driven. And it led to the founding of the Makdong Script Festival, which is um, based on the name of his character in Greenfish, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, the winners of uh, the submitted scripts would be eligible for cash prizes, personally funded by the actor, with the chance of uh, launching directing or writing careers based on the material. And I don't know if it's active anymore, and you're welcome to enlighten us, but the contest did lead to produ- the production of movies such as uh, 2424, made in 2002, and the Private Eye from 2009, starring um, uh, Wang Jingmin from The Wailing. So, is it still an ongoing uh, festival, and has it continued to be a breeding ground for new talent uh, every now and again? It is still going, and it's still a breeding ground for you know directors, both in terms of what turns into cinema and what turns into TV. If you've heard of a, a fairly recent-ish film called Petty Romance by a director called Kim Jong-un, who's gone on to become really successful with a movie called Accidental Detective. He won the prize, I think, in 2010 or 2011. So, yes, it's still going, and yes, it's still helping directors and script writers get their work out there. So I think it's a wonderful thing. Wonderful that... uh, I don't know how much he's personally still involved with it. Uh, Does anyone know that officially, or it's just his name that's attached to it? I think at this stage, it's just his name. It's become an institution. But it's sort of... Again, it underlines the, the thought that he chooses his roles because of what they are, rather than, oh, look, I'm going to get a big starring role in a huge commercial thing, because he's so obsessed with well-written scripts i think that's fabulous indeed a wonderful initiative and uh, despite that proactive activity uh, hansu q went on a lengthy break starting in 1999 because he was suffering from a disc problem so he had to decline appearances in movies such as jsa sympathy for mr vengeance and he was even at one point up for the role as uh, hong kong actor andy lao's foe in uh, the uh, movie full-time killer directed by johnny toe and uh, y kafai uh, which was, I, I like their movies, I like the Milky Way image movies. That was not a very good movie anyway. It was a bit too meta and self-referential and not in a very funny way. Uh, the role uh, eventually went to a Japanese actor and singer, Takashi Sorimachi. I love most of Johnny Toe's movies. That, that that one was just like, oh yeah, they're watching the mission in the cinema. Ha, ha, ha. And you directed that three years earlier. It was just one of those, like, come on. Uh, get, get a bit more clever. Uh, so maybe he uh, dodged a bullet on <laughs> Suku in that one. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe so indeed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the meantime, it seems the industry veered away a bit, the Korean industry, that is, from the preferred sort of image that Han Suk brought to cinema. The, the Golden Boy, you know, he didn't play the media game, so maybe he was he fell out of favor. To a, to a degree, he was more sensitive uh, and more of an intellectual, and it was firmly not the appeal uh, anymore at one point, at least on a massive scale. And his comeback in uh, Double Agent in 2003, which he also reportedly co produced, it was considered a failure. And uh, some crappy critics and uh, netizens uh, jumped on a bit of a bandwagon to sort of bash and disgrace Hansu Q because, because of this, which is such a shitty thing. because boo on you for trying to make a quality movie you know but uh there you go we had, in 2003 we're still in the age of the internet and anonymity and uh, 
it's a uh, you're a bit more brave behind the keyboard to criticize performances so uh, while you did nothing yourself mm-hmm. you didn't you didn't uh, you didn't jump in the risky pool of creativity but he did take us back a little to those sparse things i mentioned paul uh, that image that hansu q that, that personal image that he wanted to craft and project it seemed to be more of his own rather than an agency steering and crafting his public image uh, so to you or in general did you think that that's more of a brave and real choice in a landscape where stars are bred and controlled uh, otherwise by PR and all of that? This is a, a really important point that you brought up. I, I love South Korean films. You know, I'm obsessed with them. But South Korean critics have a, whether you're talking film, TV, or, you know, K-pop, whatever, there is a real tendency that if someone disappears for a year, 18 months, because of personal issues, and then comes back, it's, oh, th- this is what they've chosen as their comeback. And they're almost putting them on a pedestal ready to fall. And it's not necessarily always that, oh, look, here's a comeback. It's just the actor's been away for a little bit of time. They've come back with a new project. And South Korean critics are very, very quick to be utterly dismissive and say, oh, this was this was meant to be so-and-so's comeback and it's failed. It happens with K-pop all the time. You know, they, they don't release an album for six months and then when they do release it, it's, six oh, this, this, this is their failed comeback album. And it's, not, it's not a comeback. I think it's very aware of them. I think him doing, you know, co-producing a Double Agent, him choosing it, was just that it was a, a a thing that he he thought was worth doing. I don't think he saw it as his comeback any more than at the time of Daisy in two thousand and nine. Everybody said it was Jo Ji Hoon. Um, oh, this is our comeback. She hadn't gone anywhere, and it's the same thing. Um, I think it's very dismiss- dismissive, and I think, like you say, it's crappy of critics to do what, it. What, what a life to lead being uninformed but having the power to put your writing in there exactly there really is a a huge element of that certainly you know within korea and it's it's a bit sad yeah and and unfortunately we have a little bit of sad story to follow here in in the in you 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 mentioned this before but uh we we talk of you know media and viewing audiences uh, being who they are sometimes uh media maybe more so than viewing audiences uh, on the female crappy uh so you know hansa q didn't exactly bounce back with further movies such as the president's lost bang and the scarlet La- La- letter and the latter actually led to the suicide of actress uh, lee in the wake of the release of this erotic movie. Press and audiences came down hard on her, the raw sexual content of it all, and combined with personal troubles, depression, and you know, and that pressure, she unfortunately um, took her own life um, in the wake of uh, the release of the movie. I mean, um, it's a, a, not, not a fun sto- story. And, uh, you know, off the cuff, I guess, did anyone, like, reassess the... Uh, you know, the role that media plays in, in, in all of this, uh, in the wake of this um, tragic event, or you don't remember anyone saying, okay, we, we gotta, this was kind of our fault, we, we gotta do something different, or they just carried on. Sadly, they just carried on. I mean, if you look at the Scarlet Letter in terms of what they criticized, they said it, it was all very critical of the sexual content, all aimed at leading you. And if you look at the sexual content in Scarlet Letter and compare it to other 2004 films, it, it's 
not as not as much really what it comes down to is these critics again we've said it before throughout korean cinema it's not the content it's the context of the content and if if you de- you're dealing with the scarlet letter it it does deal with alternative lifestyles and i can guarantee you them slagging her off rather than slagging jun do yun off for happy end three years later which is far more sexually explicit and, and no one went after the ladies of the handmaiden either no exactly um and it, it all comes down to the portrayal of non normal you know man man loving marriage thing and they just came down really hard on her and she was having a lot of depression and and confidence issues anyway and i think you know they're to blame they pushed her over the edge and over the years that's changed because korea has matured but you know almost there wasn't a watershed after the scarlet letter that said this was our fault we've got to stop this it's taken many many years for for that sort of criticism to ease and die down and i i think i think that's a real shame as well but did he grow as an actor you think um in the wake of his return and all of that uh, and based on those choices because they they regardless how they did commercially which it sounds like most of them didn't do well commercially do you think it furthered him as an actor if you, when when you started to examine these movies wherever you saw them a couple of years later or recently because it, it, it does sound like i'm going into these movies based on material and i want to grow as an artist as well rather than i smell box office I, th- I think that's exactly what his his aim was and whether you look at the big big things he's been in like the berlin file and the royal taylor which was you know quite recent did really well or his smaller 2017 film called prison where he he just he is He's a prisoner who who essentially runs a prison and doesn't want to leave because he can run his entire empire from in there. Doesn't matter whether they're big, small. Every one of his performances gives something that says something about the actor that he is. I think he's hugely talented. He's a huge veteran, and I wish more people would go and see the little films he did. You know, he he did a film. I think 2010 called a bloody aria that I think two people saw. It was released in the UK. Nobody bought it apart from me. It's not the greatest of film, but his performance is incredible. And I would recommend if you see a film with Hans Q listed, go go check it out because it'll have something worthwhile to watch. You you mentioned the big movies he was in. Were they more like ensemble pieces, or they weren't like him headlining? A box office hit upon box office hit in the new millennium or uh, you, you mentioned the berlin file and i just have a feeling it's obviously not a movie about two people in a room so he, he was part of that ensemble and did that uh, made that movie blow up yeah very much so you know he was he was with ryu sungwan and as director and ryu sungbong as co-actor so it was an ensemble cast if you look at the royal taylor in comparison a joseph area era tale um, where he is the royal tailor and he is the main or one of the main male characters, only a couple of male and a couple of female. Um, if you look at White Knight, it's a very supporting role. This, that's a Son Ye Jin movie. And he just happens to be the detective that got it wrong. Um, so they're very up and down. They're not necessarily big, big starring roles. He always makes his presence felt. 
still sounds like very conscious choices because he he wasn't that artist necessarily that I'm only gonna pick small movies because that's where the integrity lies and I'm sure he could see the value in like yeah, that sounds like a big fun movie to be part of man because uh, I like big fun movies uh, so that's uh, a mixture I'm sure I would definitely I would definitely agree with you yeah that, that integrity and that way of picking is is a good good thing for any actor I suppose rather than just be stick his so uh, herself into one area only and i'm not leaving that error no it's good to branch out of course uh, uh, but but it seems like it became more of an acquired taste for audiences uh, you know uh, based on research uh, that's thrown about the place but that has not stopped directors such and writers such as park chan wook and jang jin to um, express their admiration for him and uh, maybe it's that specific style of acting that they're, they're quite fond of and that, that that specific style of acting is said to be very minimal uh, more often than not. Mm. But but if anything, to sum it all up, it sounds like he stood his ground morally and ethically as an artist and he is able to afford when all of a sudden down to pick his project. He's, a, uh, you know, he's affordable, he's employable and his preferred style of not giving into a press game is it's fine for the the career that he has currently i mean he 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 is enough of a veteran i suppose that he he can afford to be critical of uh, the media and their practices and the morals and ethics uh, and not sink his career doing so because standing your ground morally and ethically doesn't mean that you that you become vulgar about your criticism and uh, and sink your career that way it just sounds like a character that you can't afford to be honest and still get work I think so. And I think that's down to the fact that he is dependable as a, as a talent, as a real talent, as a veteran actor, who certainly in Korea is a household name, even if he's less of a household name internationally. I don't think I've ever seen more than Shiri and obviously the movie in the episode after this, because uh, I, I've seen Shiri once, but since he never came up in my sparse viewing habits and Choi Min-sik and Song Kang-ho did then it never really clicked with me you know Hans Q but now uh, that face is gonna stay with me because that that's a face that uh, just sort of yeah that guy totally good and uh, he's Hans something Hans Q that's right and and you know once you're there you start to look at him in the same way you look at Choi Min-sik in the same way you look at Song Kang-ho and you get that just from watching a couple of mil- movies and just realizing he's completely recognizable. He's completely recognizable as a talent as well. So we've reached the part where we're going to review Shiri. And as for my short opinion of Shiri, this rewatch, even though it's been years since I first saw it, I only remember sparse beats of it, um, to be honest. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, if you strip away the fact that it launched Korean cinema and its mainstream commercial action appeal, it's a perfectly fine and loud action spectacle it's slotted into the diehard template somewhat and couple it with um, local and political issues and its violent tone that's admirable but some stretches of narrative seem rushed because the movie is in quite a hurry yes it offers up thrills and tension in particular during the end but it, it doesn't really have enough dazzling spectacle for me to thoroughly remember it it's noisy and it moves but some of it sort of passes me, to be honest, and uh, I can recognize its importance, of course, but stay in power? I don't think it actually has that much staying power nowadays in terms of gotta revisit Shiri, man, because those thrills were amazing. No, no not really. It's the end for me, that is. But other than that, it's if I revisit it, it's, um, it's going to be sparsely, uh, if anything, to be honest. So uh, good, but um, 
and essential to a degree but it's uh to, to steal a term from you from an episode or two ago it's kind of throwaway when all is said and done so uh, it's a watchable action film from a time when action films weren't what action films are now certainly in korea korean action films today are well crafted they've got genuine humor in them a lot of the time fabulous action and even a degree of depth this story isn't really that out of the ordinary the comic relief doesn't always work and it's a hugely influential film it was popular because it was the first time korea had tried to out hollywood all at hollywood and i can see how important it is and watching it's interesting from that point of view it hasn't stood the test of time. It, it, it's certainly not that embarrassing in, in execution in terms of versus Hollywood. I, you know, for, for, for a basic action movie, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's sort of good. The production values are good. Totally. You know, the music's good. The, the pacing's good. It does go incredibly fast. But, you know, you've got, within the first five minutes, you've got two really, really eclectic, fast-paced montages of, you know, rumping, killing. They sort of, they Blatter you in the head, and then it settles down a little bit, and you think, "Well, now I know what I'm dealing with here." So it it, it works. I just I don't see it as as memorable for being a film as it is for having changed Korean cinema at the time. Being from the nineties, I I I started to think of okay, where in Hollywood does the movie draw its. Um inspirations from if anything and being from the 90s i'm thinking that this totally feels like a michael bay movie of the 90s when michael bay made r-rated movies uh, because it has a definite the rock vibe and i'm a fan of the rock i love the rock yeah and it has a tony scott vibe to a degree uh, you know do you know what i actually thought of i i re-watched this yesterday afternoon for the first again like you for the first time in years and after the very first shooting killing young woman thing there were a set of sort of stills of killings an agent had done and i immediately thought you know what i bet you can says you know tony scott because it felt like a tony scott music music video well, well, well. Here's the thing, though. I think those are the inspirations, and p- part of it works. If we look at the Michael Bay inspiration, it feels very much like you know that montage of North Korean training, which is. I, I know what they were thinking, but I don't think they were make, trying to make it comedic, but it actually is a bit comedic because well, yeah, the, the, is, yeah. the, the training is so hardcore and sadistic that it's about coming out of the training room with the head under your shoulder because I decapitated my subject. <laughs> I, I made it, sir. <laughs> you know, being a violent piece is kind of cool, but it's funny that but we have a technical problem here that is indicative of the time, still is indicative of global cinema. Uh, Kang, our director, opts for a chaotic action style that is actually on the, you know, on the negative side. It's way too shaky, and uh, the the fluidity even within the handheld action, which is very very handheld at times. Yeah, it's not always coming through, and it's actually it's indicative early. It's kind of indicative throughout almost all action scenes that. I think they need to sort of settle down and let us have a little bit of a more uh, a view of the action. Now, having said that, I love Tony Scott. I love when Tony Scott is very 
intense with his edits and shaky like you read about but Tony Scott had sort of he had that vibe down he knew where that made sense or where it did not make sense in my opinion a lot of people hate that style of Tony Scott but I I, I really like it especially his uh, millennium style man on fire style and all of that Uh, so we we got a problem a little bit technical problem there where I couldn't uh, spot enough of an action flow that made me um you know, be that, I wasn't dazzled by that fast moving and loud style. I mean, uh, that, that that montage that you describe of the uh, various uh, agents that have been killed, it's actually a visual exposition dump. And it's set to drum and bass as well, which is <laughs> is so 90s in a way. I'm sure drum and bass is uh, viable in some shape or form, but it's sort of like <laughs> exposition dump, images, images, images. And when all is said and done, it establishes plot, I think, uh, about the assassin, he's killing spree. And when they settle down and talk about these things, you know, when uh, Song Kang Ho and Han Su Q and various characters start shaping that picture. In my opinion, exposition dumps are always hard. They do okay here when all is said and done. It feels fairly natural the way they talk about it as they move through governmental buildings or sit down with each other. What is going on and what is the pending threat here? All of those things feel okay to me. Or, or what do you think in terms of how, how they develop that? I, I agree. I was aware of, as you say, expedition, exposition dumps. And I, I have a real problem with overuse of exposition so i was aware of them i i was all right to let it go which i normally wouldn't be so they must have handled it decently enough one problem i do think within all this yeah yes we get it but the the nightmare that the assassin the assassin he is it's through those drum and bass exposition images (laughs) they are in such a hurry to introduce her as a nightmare that he kind of director is he he almost gets it done too quickly and then we're off yeah. into the plot. Yeah. I, I didn't feel that she was a threat, but but I didn't mind watching the violent outbursts of of her on screen because it, it's damn violent this movie. It's an eighteen in the UK for good reason. But I, I wasn't looking for nuance and depth, but there was a part of me that I was thinking, if they just slow down ever so slightly and didn't feel um the need to be in in an extreme hurry we would have maybe had a slightly more effective movie on our hands here but um it happens later in the movie as well done Phew! off and i I, th- I think in the director's defense i think not that he should be defended for it but i i think that's simply because they were specifically saying we've got to we've got to compete with, with hollywood and they just they almost did that to say look we're competing with hollywood look how fast this is and it's almost like they've done it deliberately when when they're just too inexperienced to have dealt with how not to do it, really. Yeah, it feels a little bit too anxious uh, mm. to me. It's almost on the right side of, yeah, this is good enough. But it, I, I, I did feel at this viewing that um, so someone is um, trying to fast forward through this story. Yeah, uh, really. Yeah. Um, I, I do enjoy that it uh, sort of, it seems like it, it's uh, embracing tropes, though. And one of my favorite tropes in action movies of, uh, of particularly in the 80s and 90s is that bad guys don't blend into a crowd. Bad guys look super bad and ready to be super bad as they step off planes and trains and shit. And I I, I kind of find that irresistible that uh, Choi Min-sik's gang. Uh, he is so cool, man. <laughs> he is just 
it's great. You see him walking up straight, you know, with his just slightly longish hair, and you just think, man, you were cool. I'm I'm going for the bad guys, yeah. And and even his uh, his guys, uh, you know, uh, the the indistinguishable guys that are only there to be bad guys looking super bad. Yeah. Tropes that are perfectly fine and uh, and likable uh, for the movie, just like that, um, they they never try to blend in <laughs> because they all mm, I glare, you know. And it does on a very very small sidestep. If you if you check out his most recent film, you know, Good Guys Always Die, you can almost see the same bad guys not fitting in thing being used used much more tongue in cheek, but. It's still there, and you just think, look, you go straight back to that. So, you know, yeah, wow. But but, but speaking of actors, though, I mean, it, it, this is a movie with a commercial sheen to it, so it needs, it, it isn't attempting depth, but it needs to have likability when we have actors simply talking, and when there's good times, scenes, and interactions, and they need to be they need to be immaculate because uh, they are uh, they always wear suits and their 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 hairs up absolutely perfect because they're government persons right so yeah, so yeah. it needs to be a handsome sort of sheen to this movie so when looking at sort of the likability of watching actors act in this genre movie do, do you think they get that right that the image of them and do, do they bring charisma in um, in a bearable way i think they really do and i think that's one of the strongest things about the film the fact that they do bring charisma they do draw you in i think they're all their talent as it will become when they when their careers progress i think it's it already shows um the one thing i will maybe it's just me but when i rewatched it i rewatched the tartan asia extreme version and i i'm sure it was maybe the same version you used ken when i listened to hansen q and sunk hopefully their voices seemed like a semitone up in pitch. Yeah, it, it might be a Paul NTSC thing because, uh, yeah. I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And that almost stood out for me because I just, it gave me comedic value when it, sh- when it shouldn't have. Because I, yeah, it, well, it's maybe just, their it, voice hasn't, voices hadn't broken yet. We're in action movies, yo! <laughs> they do look incredibly young, but maybe not that young. <laughs> But, but but they do have a I mean they they do have easy easygoing interaction and um you know the the, really tr- the, the trio that um that is the sort of core relationship you know and, and it's not a rival type of relationship you know the the times of niceness is all fine as a break from from work and uh, there, there is a certain element of you know charisma for the commercial sheen that this movie needs to have but but they do they don't phone it in necessarily no they don't i mean it might be an early choi min sick performance being evil and he was he was going to do that for a couple of movies but he he doesn't phone it in either in a role that's not developed at all it's just north korean hardcore motherfuckers we're gonna reunite stuff here by blowing it up they're bad guys there's no nuance to that but choi min sick doesn't look bored no, and, and and he puts it across well enough, you know. And I'll also say, as far as if you look at the chemistry b- between Kim Yoo Jin and Han Suk Kyu, it really worked for me. I really believed that they were a couple, you know. So I, I I think the performances are are very much the strongest part of this film, even though there are other fairly strong parts. I tend to agree. I mean, they're not um, um, these, uh, you know. It's it's not an acting showcase, but. 
uh, is a nice calm element to the movie in between when they jump into action, which they do a lot like men do in action movies, which is of course. an amusing trope. I do have to say, I, I found the, uh, uh, the there's some underdeveloped beats here that I think again was due to, I, I just think they're too anxious to get it moving very, very fast. As they uh, describe this uh, explosive um, Chem- chemical that's the that's gonna be the basis for the bomb and all of that and i thought it was quite underdeveloped how the north korean bad guys got, got a hold of the root of uh, the vans that are transporting this and that it, it was almost a bit too laughable how they're able to craft this perfect heist plan using just five or six people and some automatic guns and a van and yes you can laugh at that but i thought that was on the verge of not good enough for even for a basic action movie you know um on the technical side yes it has a decent pulse as a as a heist action scene and Hans secure and song kang ho in their suits they jump from the helicopters with automatic machine guns and getting it done like men but it's still a little thing that bothered me that uh, if they'd slow down just a little bit and try to justify that these are perf these are well planned you know well-made plans then i would have accepted a bit more of the movie but it felt a little bit rushed to me yeah you 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 just feel that that perhaps the director just sort of let it go at that because it'll do it's the action that we need and we're just about to as you say jump from helicopters and blah 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 and and they just passed over because they thought they got away with it rather than sitting down and thinking we need to we need to do something more with that. And I think that's just because of, of the time it came from. It wasn't important. You know, big bangs were important. In terms of the North Korean angle commercially, it, do, do they do that just for uh, even for shallow action movies? Bring it in or, or, or do they more often than not treat, you know, when plotting? North Korea and South Korea and the conflict, do they, do they normally try to uh, make it a more deeper thing or do they use it for shallow purposes too in south korean cinema because in, in this movie it is really for shallow purposes they're the bad guys more often than not over the last years any mention of north korea has been almost a propaganda for south stuff there have been a few directors like lee sang who did a, a thing called dear dictator which looked at South Koreans deciding that they maybe wanted to move to the north, um, but his stuff is just inflammatory from start to finish, and he's the exception rather than the rule. Very often, it's oh look the evil North Koreans, and oh look the the wonderful bright and shiny South Koreans. In terms of that, you'd almost say that this film's showing of North Korea is almost a little bit more sympathetic than a lot of subsequent films. You know, a lot of them have just been shooting North Korea down because they are evil incarnate and look at our wonderful South Korean thing. Was JSA sort of a game changer in that regard? That, that they, they, when, when Park Chan-wook really, he humanized uh, them, really. The reason JSA is considered the masterpiece that it is is because it's not about North and South, it's about people who happen to be from the North and South, but it's completely separate to every other or virtually every other depiction of North and South in war films, in thrillers, in any you care to mention, really. Because in the latter half, things start to click a little bit more for me, including... um 
exposition dumps, they're, they're the nightmare for any filmmaker. You have to visualize things for audiences and verbalize things for audiences. And I, I think by the time Kang reaches the second half and really establishes when the CTX will explode and how he um, and how he uses the the red ball in the chemical component or the water to show that when it's about to explode it's a fairly lengthy little speech about that but it does plant that visual in our minds going into the ending and for something that's a nightmare for any director to do i think that is what was good because we can connect to it by the time we reach the end where it's a ticking clock scenario so i think by then they're starting to do things quite well in terms of that exposition dump they're, they're not in as much of a hurry because they're in a lab and you can't like run around the lab now we got to listen to a doctor speaking calmly and measured <laughs> yeah i so, guess i guess uh, so, so i i personally thought that for for if you look at what kind of genre and what kind of movie they're doing that exposition exposition dump they got away with because it's so difficult uh really when you have to communicate to all totally and and they do it. They do it fairly succinctly, I guess, um, to the point where you're glad they did it when when you reach the conclusion because it does set you in a familiar sort of thing. In in terms of the action, though, because there's, there's a lot of gunplay here. Um, in my opinion, it, it doesn't owe so much to John Woo because it's not stylized uh, gunplay. Um, Really, doesn't know anything to Ringo Lam either because Ringo was more brutal with his uh, action. But if you look at the gunplay sequences that they produce, um, uh, um, they are quite uh, extensive because they take place within different locations uh, and all of that. So, uh, how do you think they get that that noise through? Because uh, they, it is noisy indeed for a good five ten minutes at one point. I, I think they they manage it perfectly well. The point here, I, I think. Uh, the volume and noise of it is compelling, I think, uh, because they um, it's just a you know massively violent and loud gun battles, and people are gonna get killed and violently so. So for for me, that works uh, a lot. That, that that it's noisy and there is a volume to it. Well, I think there has to be certainly to to carry the whole setup forward, really. And and, he, and it, it works well, you know, and, and I I wouldn't say I'm a big fan of that sort of, you know, eclectic noise, 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 but it worked for me. I didn't have a problem with it at all in this because I was being carried along with the story anyway. There's essentially two good things and one bad thing about especially the, the latter gunplay sequences. The good thing is that I like especially Hansu Q is a character who just throws himself into it and everybody does really. But I, I do like that part of his character that, you know, because at one point he has to deal with tragedy for a minute because he can't afford to deal with it more than a minute. He has to rush to another thing. It's an aspect of rushing that works and he just needs to throw himself into new, dangerous, violent, frenzied confrontations. And I like that and therefore I like how he uh, comes off as an action actor. I still don't like how Kang shoots his action. It is too shaky and only at sparse points I got a sense of geography and flow within the action. Um, it's the sort of feel that we saw in the 90s uh, anyway. Uh, and a few movies did the shaky cam really well. Saving Private Ryan did it for a purpose. It needed mm. to feel a certain way. The Bourne movies... 
did it because I guess that's how we do it, right? And then just ruined it by shaking it and editing it it poorly. And unfortunately, I think uh, Shiri doesn't get a, a full passing grade for um, for how it captures it all when it comes to the gunplay. I like that it's a lot of it and and the, and the noise and volume and the extensive nature of it going from location to location. That's okay, but I hope he learned to shoot action a little bit better for his subsequent um, uh, spectacle movies because uh, this doesn't quite cut it. If you look at my way, which he did, I think in two thousand and two thousand and fourteen, might have been slightly earlier. Um, he has sections that have huge gunplay and are handheld, and if you compare them to Shiri, they they they're just poles apart. So he, over the years, has learned his craft, and I I think I think we can lay the problems with the handheld thing in Shiri down to simply inexperience in dealing with that sort of deal. I can almost be forgiving simply because of what he did succeed in doing with the film. Um, Even though I agree, they annoyed deeply and they're they're not really good enough. And and we're not going to spoil it though. Uh, He doesn't choose to uh, depict the ending in that kind of fashion, in a gunplay fashion. It's more about exercising uh, the beats of tension. Mm. So the, the ticking clock scenario, dialogue between bad guy and good guy, spelling out, you know, this is why we do it. Uh, this is why we need to do it. Uh, it's um, it's action movie tropes, but uh, how do you think that plays today? You know, because uh, the actors get to do some stuff. You know, we, we get some verbal stuff, but also it's a ticking clock scenario. So it needs to be. Uh, you know, uh, uh, there needs to be tension and there needs to be some action beats. I knew exactly what was coming. I mean, it's there's nothing out of the ordinary here, but I think I think everybody involved handled it well enough. It's as you say, it's a ticking clock scenario. What's going to happen? Well, you kind of you can almost guess as you go through. And I wasn't bored. I wasn't excited. I think they handled it as well as something that's fairly predictable can be handled. There's the difference between what a uh, Michael Bay in The Rock did and Tony Scott did of you know whatever movie you want to talk of, uh, Crimson Tide, Man on Fire. Michael Bay, if you look at The Rock on its own, in my opinion, he uh, knew how to crank it well and to get you like, oh my god, oh, that's awesome, 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 oh, come on, come on, come on, I know it's going to happen, but oh yes, he did it. You know, I, I can get verbal a little bit more with that. I think that's a real skill. That, that that few have that they can take what should be a really familiar thing and really crank it up to the point where you're on the edge of your seat because, you know, a, a ticking time bomb thing is a ticking time bomb thing. So if you can get, if they can get you on the edge of their seat, they have succeeded beyond expectations. Um, I don't think Kang manages that, but he does okay. In all honesty, I think it was uh, for for me. I think it was uh, a little bit more infectious than that towards the end. Um, because the, the the lead up to the finale is quite long, but if any set piece stood out in terms of oh they're gonna get right they're getting there this is uh, the action movie they were going for, it works a little bit better towards the end. Even though yes, you know it was you know it's gonna be a last second 
thing yeah. before before obviously this movie doesn't end in a cynical way uh, okay. listeners uh, but i i thought this worked a little bit better the the beats uh, were familiar and uh, the action tropes were you know on display fully but um he exercised ten- I, I i took away if, if i'm being honest i took away that he was good at um tension as someone who likes to sometimes track directors it's another thing i hope that might be um evident in subsequent movies the way he deals with um, tension because um, that wasn't too bad to be honest i extracted that more than any uh, explosions or buildings uh, and uh, for korea maybe advanced cgi at the time uh, that i don't care about but tension was something i sort of like hey kang i hope you do well later on in terms of tension I think I'll conclude my notes here. I, 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 other than I think I'll say that I, I do like Hansu Q has this. Um, he's an intense hero, that, and I, I take that away from it as well. I, it's the likable factor of the actor that he's uh, he has an intensity about him that makes him a fairly smoothly integrated action hero. I think yeah, the way he leaps into it, he's not timid about these things. Uh, without being buff or anything, he's a governmental agent, so you see him in suits most of the time. So it isn't obviously um, a Bruce Willis role or an Arnold role uh, with quips and shit or uh, ripping his shirt off and uh, being bloody and all of that. No, it's uh, they, they keep that, they do that instead. They, you know, they keep him um, real in terms of that. If I take two things away from it, I guess it's the tension that uh, and uh, Hansu Q is uh, is very likable as an intense hero and as we'll talk of in the movie after this episode. Mm-hmm. You have the actor there, uh, the solid. Uh, in terms of underplaying things, a type of actor uh, as well. He's not this um, crazily intense actor, and that's compelling as well. So I'll I'll conclude my notes there. All um, you know, watch it if you want to um, see where it all began, and it's an easy enough time. But um, r- uh, reference material, no, not really. I can't think of if I've seen any Korean action movie that just did it, did, like really did it in terms of um, uh, that I've seen that is uh, because I'm sure I've just missed it they really nailed that oh yeah they they, they, go, they got the vibe down the spectacle vibe da- down on terms of that I'd say just check out any Ryusung one action film you know what you're going to get with him but he he hits the he hits the pacing from start to finish whether you're talking about the Berlin file you know uh there's hundreds of other, you know, he was the action kid, so... Who, who, whoever did Assassination, I think, uh, uh, earned my respect as well, because I thought that was a... By our two, anyway. I think that that was uh, an exciting time and a violent time as well. They didn't shy away from violence in that one. and um, uh, So whoever did that, I think uh, that's a talent to look for. I, I totally agree. And if if you look at Assassination, I think it's got... Um, a lot more going for it. It was it was directed by a guy called um, Choi Dong Hoon, um, who did a film previously, which was essentially Korea's Eleven, whatever you know. Um, I think in Oceans Eleven. Yes, Oceans thing. Eleven. Yeah. It was it was essentially that. Um, it was a film called The Thieves, and it it at the time, and I think it was two thousand and twelve, two thousand and no, it was two thousand and twelve. I think um, it was the first of the films that started to break box office records and it had John Ji Hoon in it and it was it was by the book Oceans Eleven, but it was better. 
it was just paced better. It was more exciting. And, and after one film, he, he became a name to be reckoned with. And, you know, he followed it up with assassination. And, you know, that says it all. If anybody interested, there's an interview with him on my site as well. There you have the crucial point that both you and I, we're certainly not stuffy viewers. We're like a good pulse-pounding action movie. Yeah. And, and Shiri went for it, but it's... I don't know. Not even back then I thought uh, this is dazzling. I did remember the ticking clock scenario being oh, like, oh, oh yeah, at the last second. Phew. So, and, and that's sort of my same reaction that, yeah, that's well done, but I, I think there's better stuff to come and it's a, it's a, it's a important start and... Uh, and but but it's not uh, something I'd, I'd return to. I mean, uh, again, I'm hopping on about the rock and Michael Bay and, and that feel and a crimson tide. Uh, again, Tony Scott, that execution of that feel, I'll return to in a heartbeat because that, that gets it right. Sherry doesn't. It, it's a, a fair few steps away from that, but by no yeah. means uh, disposable and forgettable. Uh, even if you strip away the importance of it all, you know, it's okay. But. Not dazzling. All I've got to say is check it out if you want to see how Korean film began to change to become what it is today. It's good from that point of view. It's good in terms of seeing three humongously talented actors at the very beginning of their career and see how ultimately talented they were even back then. The films rather throw away. It's important for what it did, not for what it was. And as for availability, there's no shortage of uh, distribution around the world, um, mainly on DVD, though, and not uh, on the Blu-ray. But um, in-print options are they're, they're not plentiful, but the Amazon Marketplace has very reasonable priced used copies of, for instance, the UK DVD by Tartan, as well as the US DVD, which I believe was uh, a Columbia TriStar um, release. Uh, they are fine viewing options, uh, despite standard definition, so don't uh, feel like married to HD or anything, listeners. It, it's all good. Uh, but Tartan DVD is based on the international version, and uh, but, but there's not a whole lot of difference between uh, that and the director's cut. What the director's cut removed was the intro text explaining uh, the conflict between North and South Korea, uh, that's all in English, as well as the scene where a cop gets uh, murdered uh, with the use of an iron rod, and the reason that scene was removed was that the director didn't consider the, sign, uh, the scene vital. And I think he's right, because there's a nameless yeah. cop, and like, who was that? That Choi, Choi Min-sik pierced with a rod. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <know>? totally. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I guess that's... Uh, but but that, that scene is in the, on the Tartan DVD, but we're talking a minute extra. So obviously they, they didn't pad it for the international version, and then he removed 20 minutes or anything for the director's cut. Not at all. Uh, so uh, yeah, yes, the, the only upside is <laughs> for Choi Music, I guess. It's like uh, you get blood splattered on your face. Sweet, sweet movies, movies rock. <laughs> and in a few years, I've played this too much, man. Yeah, <laughs> I want to do a movie like Springtime. You can, <laughs> sweet. Uh, so there we are. And uh, next time we take you into another North Korea, North Korea, South Korean template with 2003's already mentioned movie. Double Agent, starring a lead from Shiri Hansuk Kyu. It's that mentioned comeback vehicle for Hansuk Kyu after his um, his uh, health problems. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know when he he was like cleared in terms of uh, that, but uh, certainly it took and um, between nineteen ninety nine to two thousand three for a movie to come out again. Yeah, I think I think for a fair portion of that, he was also focusing on 
producing stuff by other directors. So mm. I guess combined, he he stepped away for that length of time, but it wasn't all health. Yeah, so it wasn't bedridden for four years. and um... No. Uh, cool, and uh, that's our episode uh, for this time around. Really quick, uh, I'll just like to say, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, including our backlog of What's Korean Cinema episodes, go to podcastonfire.com on it. On the site, you'll find all the relevant social media links. In the show post for this episode, you'll find the time codes, all the relevant links that uh, are part of this discussion. So go to podcastonfire.com. But that's me plugged out. But uh, Paul, you got a firm full plug for Hangul Celluloid. And when are you going to review Shiri or you don't feel inspired to write about it? Shiri will be probably never covered simply because yeah it was important at a time but i think there are much more important films from 1999 that if i was going to do more of those i would choose them first there are better out there so probably never going to happen but for all your other <laughs> south korean film needs head to hangelcelluloid.com as, as i say i'm on facebook at facebook.com slash hangelcelluloid on twitter at twitter dot com slash hangle celluloid find me go have a look check out the reviews and interviews and uh, see if you find anything that tickles your fancy excellent but uh, we'll uh, sign off and uh, we'll see you next week listeners for the episode on double agent but in the meantime i've been uh, kenny and with me was to school me on all things korean cinema from 1999 was uh, paul queen of hangle celluloid so say goodbye buddy take care guys see ya